Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the summer of 1965, 12-year-old Mark Frost sat in front of a crackling fireplace. His grandmother, Betty, was beside him, her face grave. She spoke slowly, retelling a legend that sent a shiver down young Mark's spine. Just a few miles from Betty's cabin, a terrible crime had taken place. Some details had been lost to the years, but she remembered others clearly. It was 1908. There had been a young, beautiful woman. She died mysteriously, and her body had been found in the nearby Teal's Pond. That might have been the end of it, but the young woman's spirit was angry. Locals believed she'd been murdered, but her killer, or killers, were never brought to justice. Nearly 60 years later, the young woman's ghost still haunted Teal's Pond, If Mark ever went down there alone, he might run into her, and she might take out her fury on him. The night he heard this story, 12-year-old Mark shivered with fear. But over the years, his terror turned to fascination. He learned more about this woman. Her name was Hazel Drew, and she was known around town as a kind, smart, and respectable young adult. But Hazel Drew also had secrets. This secrecy inspired Mark. Over 30 years later, he sat down with director and artist David Lynch. Together, the two men wrote the television show that would become a cult phenomenon, Twin Peaks. Its main character, Laura Palmer, was a lot like Hazel Drew. Publicly, both women were young and innocent, but behind closed doors, they were something else entirely. They lived double lives, ones that ended with their violent and mysterious deaths. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our only episode on the 1908 murder of Hazel Drew. We'll cover the investigation into Hazel's mysterious death, dive into the young woman's secretive double life, and discuss who might have been responsible for her untimely demise. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. 
Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Before the turn of the 20th century, most people in New York State lived on small farms. But as the Gilded Age reached its height and New York became the hub of American industry, more people moved from rural farms to bustling cities. One of these people was a young woman named Hazel Drew. She spent her childhood in the rural town of Sand Lake in upstate New York, But in 1902, at the age of 14, she left her family's farm and moved about 10 miles northwest to Troy, one of New York's wealthiest cities at the time. There, she got a job as a domestic servant, and her once quiet life changed forever. Hazel Drew discovered a new world in Troy. She earned her own money. She met new friends. She became interested in fashion something she'd never been exposed to in Sand Lake. By the time she was 20 years old, Hazel was no longer a farm girl. She was a young metropolitan woman. Her life was fast-paced, full of spontaneous weekend trips and lunch dates with friends. But then, in the summer of 1908, that all came to a screeching halt. July was an unusually hot month in upstate New York, Temperatures hovered in the low 90s, prompting people to shed their heavy Victorian-era clothing for more summery attire. But not 20-year-old Hazel Drew. On the night of July 3, 1908, she paid her local tailor the equivalent of about $75 to sew her a brand new dress. The final product was a long skirt made of thick black fabric. It was the exact opposite of a sundress. But Hazel swore she needed the garment for an upcoming Independence Day trip. She told her tailor that she was going about 50 miles north to Lake George with her Aunt Minnie, and she'd only wear the nicest clothing during her vacation. However, for some reason, Hazel never made it to Lake George. She stayed in Troy through the weekend. And on Monday, July 6th, Hazel started acting strange. That morning, she awoke in her quarters at the home of Professor Edward B. Carey. Professor Carey and his wife employed Hazel as a domestic servant and governess. She took care of household chores and occasionally helped teach the Careys' children. But that Monday, Hazel didn't feel like working. She got out of bed late and walked down the stairs, still half asleep. Oh, Hazel, you're up. Uh Uh-huh. I've got a basket of laundry sitting by the basin. I need the children's clothes washed and dried as soon as possible, if you don't mind getting started on them. No, thanks. Are you all right? Me? I'm fine. I'm just not going to do the laundry. In fact, I'm not going to do anything here anymore. I'm quitting, Mrs. Carey. Did one of the children say something to offend you? I'll set them straight right away. No, no, it's nothing like that. I just don't want to work here any longer. But why? Have you told Edward? No. I figured you could do that. I'm just going to pack my trunk and have it sent to my parents' house. I'll be gone by lunchtime. But thank you for everything. Well, okay. We'll miss you. Let me give you your last week's wages. Hazel took the money, a little over $100 today. 
She went back to her room and packed most of her belongings into a large trunk. She also packed a separate suitcase. Even though it was blazing hot outside, Hazel put on her brand new black dress, the one she'd supposedly had made for her trip to Lake George. She pulled her blonde hair into a loose bun and tied a pink ribbon around her neck. Wherever she was headed, Hazel made sure to look fashionable. Then she called a carriage to have her trunk delivered to her parents' house in Sand Lake, about 10 miles away. Normally, a person would ride alongside their luggage to make sure nothing was stolen, but Hazel seemed unconcerned about her trunk. She didn't ride in the carriage, but took off on foot from the Carrie's home, carrying nothing but her suitcase, purse, and wallet. Hazel made the short walk to her Aunt Minnie's house across town. When she knocked on Minnie's door, it was approximately 10 a.m. Hi, Hazel. I wasn't expecting you. Just coming by to say hello. Shouldn't you be at work? I took some days off. I'm going to visit some friends in Watervliet. Were the Carries all right with you taking time off? They didn't seem to mind. Well, as long as you're staying on good terms, you wouldn't want to lose that job. Do you want something to eat before you go out of town? No, I just wanted to let you know where I was headed. Bye, Aunt Minnie. Bye, Hazel. Hazel didn't tell her aunt that she'd quit her job. She simply said she was heading to Watervliet, a small town about a half a mile from Troy. But Hazel didn't actually go to Watervliet. She had three friends in that area, and none of them were expecting her on July 6th. In fact, they said they hadn't seen or heard from Hazel in months. From there, Hazel's movements were unaccounted for. Some people reported seeing a pretty blonde woman walking around Troy, but nobody could positively identify her. Strangest of all, nobody knew where Hazel spent the night on July 6, 1908. All that's known is that the next morning, Tuesday, July 7th, Hazel was seen around Union Station, a train stop about eight miles south of Troy. At exactly 1.49 p.m., she checked her suitcase into a holding area at Union Station. Then, she left the stop carrying nothing but her purse and wallet. Nobody saw or heard from Hazel Drew until that evening. Around 7.30, at least three separate couples reported seeing a young blonde woman in a black dress walking along Taberton Road. The woman stood out because Taberton Road wasn't exactly a safe place, especially at night. It was a winding, wooded trail that ran about a mile outside of Troy and led to a small body of water called Teal's Pond. Usually the area was completely empty of pedestrians, besides the occasional fisherman or squirrel hunter. And there was one more witness, one who claimed he actually spoke to Hazel. His name was Frank Smith. He was 17 years old and worked as a farmhand just outside of Troy. According to him, he'd been friends with Hazel for a few years. Frank was riding in a carriage with another man, a 35-year-old charcoal manufacturer named Rudolf Gundrum, when he saw Hazel on the road. Rudolf, stop. I I think I know that girl. Hazel! Hey, Hazel! Hi there. 
Hazel, what are you doing out here? Oh, nothing much. Do you need a ride? No, thanks. Are you sure? It's starting to get dark. I'm fine. Well, okay. See you later, then. Frank and Rudolph's carriage rolled away. They were the last known people to see Hazel Drew alive. Four days later, on July 11th, 1908, a group of three men were walking down Taberton Road alongside Teal's Pond. One of them, Lorenzo Gruber, noticed something floating in the water. He called to his friends. Hey, I think there's something in the pond. It looks like, like, a woman. His friends ran over. Lorenzo waded about 15 feet into the water. His instincts were right. It was the body of a young blonde woman. Her black dress was soaked. Her body was so bloated that the pink ribbon she tied around her neck cut into her flesh. Lorenzo pulled the woman's body to shore. Oh my God. Is she okay? No. Someone's got to go get a doctor. Fast. She's not breathing. Is she? I I don't know. I I don't. Just go find help. Wait. Lorenzo, look. Down the path. There's a pair of gloves and a hat. Lorenzo's friend picked up the garments. The gloves looked expensive, and so did the hat. It was black straw with three large plumes and a pin in the shape of the letter H. He placed the items beside the edge of the pond where Lorenzo stood next to the woman's body. Neither man said it out loud, but they were both thinking the same thing. This wasn't an accident. This was a murder. Coming up, police investigate Hazel Drew's death and discover that she was hiding some major secrets. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. On July 11, 1908, three friends found a young woman's body floating in Teal's Pond in upstate New York. One man, Lorenzo Gruber, stayed near the scene while the others went to find help. Lorenzo's friends walked up Taberton Road, a winding rural street. 
They told everyone they passed that they'd discovered a corpse in Teal's Pond. Word spread like wildfire. By the time Lorenzo's friends returned with the doctor, there was already a crowd of locals surrounding the scene. The physician, 70-year-old Dr. Elias Boyce, made his way through the audience. Dr. Boyce asked Lorenzo to pull the body onto dry land. The man lugged the corpse from the shore and turned it face up beneath the bright summer sun. The crowd gasped. The woman's face was swollen, decomposed, and altogether unrecognizable. Dr. Boyce confirmed what Lorenzo and his friends had already been thinking. The woman's death was almost certainly the result of foul play. A doctor wouldn't be enough. They needed to call the police. A little while later, District Attorney Jarvis O'Brien and County Detective Duncan Kay arrived on the scene. Where did you all find the hat and gloves? About, um, 20 or so feet up the path. But they weren't dirty. They seemed like they'd just been sat there. Placed there deliberately, you mean? Yes. There's no blood, no broken branches, no heel marks in the trail. No sign of a struggle. We'll send the body to a medical examiner, but you boys try not to worry. It looks to me like this lady might have just had an accident, slipped, fallen in, and drowned, you know? But an accident was the best-case scenario. O'Brien also believed that the woman might have died by suicide. It was impossible to tell if she'd slipped and fell into Teal's pond, or if she jumped in on purpose. One thing was for sure. O'Brien wasn't considering homicide until he received the results of the woman's autopsy. The medical examiner found a large contusion on the back of the woman's head. It looked like she'd been hit with some kind of blunt object. Her skull wasn't fractured, but she'd suffered a severe concussion. When the medical examiner analyzed the woman's lungs and stomach, he didn't find any water. That meant that the woman couldn't have died by drowning. She was already dead when she entered the water. The concussion almost certainly killed her. This didn't rule out O'Brien's theory entirely. It was possible that the woman slipped, hit the back of her head on a rock, died instantly, and fell into the water. But that chain of events was predicated on coincidences, and it seemed unlikely. It was more probable that someone killed the woman than placed her body in Teal's pond. They might have arranged her hat and gloves to make the murder look like a suicide or an accidental drowning. That left police with two questions. Who would do something like this? And why? But investigators couldn't answer those questions yet. First, they needed to find out who the dead woman was. Investigators questioned Lorenzo, his friends, and other people who'd been at Teal's Pond the day the body was discovered. Frank Smith, the local farmhand, spoke to the police. He said he had no idea who the woman might be. He didn't mention that he'd seen Hazel Drew walking along the road a few days before. But other witnesses did report seeing the blonde woman on July 7th. At least three different couples told police they saw her making her way down the rural road around 7.30 p.m., just as the sun was setting. However, none of these couples knew the woman's name. The only information officers had was the woman's hat pin. It was shaped like the letter H. 
This could have been the woman's name or the name of a friend or lover. Unable to identify her on their own, the police gave a description of the woman to local newspapers. Her body was kept at a nearby funeral home, and anyone could come by to identify her. A full day later, on July 12th, a tall, light-haired man showed up to take a look at the body. It was Hazel Drew's father, John. Do you recognize her? It's hard to say. The black dress, it looks like hers, but I can't be sure. There's gold fillings in the back teeth. Does that help at all? Yes, that's her. That's my daughter. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Even as Hazel's father identified her body, he didn't show the slightest hint of grief. This could have been the result of shock, but nevertheless, it struck law enforcement as very odd. Now that they had a name for the victim, officers interviewed other members of Hazel's family. The more answers they got, the stranger their investigation became. Hazel's mother acted just like her husband. She seemed numb to the news of her daughter's death. Weirder yet, Hazel's mother couldn't answer basic questions about her daughter's life. She couldn't say what Hazel liked to do outside of work, and she wasn't able to give the name of a single one of Hazel's friends. In all likelihood, this was because Hazel wasn't close to her parents. She'd moved off the family farm when she was just 14 years old. Ever since then, she'd been staying with wealthy families in Troy, working as a live-in servant. Still, the fact that Hazel's parents didn't know anything about her personal life was troubling. There was only one person in Hazel's family who actually spent time with her, her Aunt Minnie. Did Hazel have any enemies? Anyone who might want to hurt her? Absolutely not. Everyone loved her. She came by my house on July 6th and said she was going to visit friends in Waterville Eat. She was carrying a suitcase, so I figured she was staying overnight. That's the last time I spoke to her. She didn't mention anything about going to Teal's Pond? No. Do you know anyone who might have taken her to the area? A boyfriend, maybe? Oh, no. Hazel didn't have any boyfriends, but there is something. I'm not sure if Hazel's mother told you, but she's got an uncle who lives out near Teal's Pond. His name is William. Maybe she was going to visit him. District Attorney O'Brien and Detective Kay took note of the fact that Hazel's mother didn't mention this uncle. This seemed like a pretty glaring omission. Intrigued, they followed up on this lead. 52-year-old William Taylor's farm was about a mile from Teal's Pond. He was known as a quiet, morose man, and he didn't seem particularly happy to speak to law enforcement. He told them, No, I didn't see Hazel that night. I wasn't expecting her either. Hazel and I weren't close. She wouldn't just drop by. If Hazel wasn't visiting her uncle's farm, she must have been on Taberton Road for a different reason. According to the couples who saw her, she didn't seem to be in any rush. She was alone. She was totally calm. One couple even said that they saw her snacking on raspberries from a nearby bush. But this story didn't add up. 
The medical examiner checked the contents of Hazel's stomach, and there were no raspberries in her digestive system. This meant one of two things. Either the couple was mistaken, or Hazel Drew had stopped on the side of the road and pretended to have a snack. This was a chilling proposition. It was possible that Hazel was putting on a sort of show, desperately trying to look casual. But there must have been a reason for her behavior. If she was faking nonchalance, she must have been hiding something. And to investigators, there was only one story that made sense. Maybe Hazel Drew wasn't actually alone. Perhaps someone else was walking with her. Someone who didn't want to be seen. Taberton Road ran through a densely wooded area, so whenever they saw or heard a carriage approaching, Hazel's mysterious companion could have hidden in the trees. Then Hazel ambled around, eating berries and pretending to be on a casual evening stroll. But this person's identity was a mystery. Investigators didn't think it could be one of Hazel's friends. Otherwise, it didn't make sense for them to hide. In all likelihood, it was a man. Someone that Hazel wanted to keep a secret. But this was all speculation. Officers didn't have any evidence that a second person was present. It was possible that Hazel really was walking alone. Though why she would do such a thing, where she was headed and how she eventually wound up dead in Teal's Pond was anybody's guess. Over the next few days, officers reconstructed Hazel's movements leading up to her death. They spoke to 17-year-old Frank Smith again, and he admitted that he'd spoken to Hazel on July 7th. Frank said he didn't realize the body belonged to Hazel at first, so he didn't think his testimony was important. But this was a weak excuse... Frank had known Hazel for years. Even though her body was decomposed, he would have recognized her clothing and hair. His hesitancy seemed very suspicious. He wasn't an official suspect, but officers kept an eye on him. From other conversations around town, detectives found out that Hazel paid for her brand new dress, then quit her job, packed a suitcase, and took off. She didn't tell anyone the truth about where she was going. It seemed like she didn't want anyone to know where she was headed, and it was unclear if she had intended to come back. In some ways, it looked like Hazel was taking off to start a new life. The problem was, she only had the equivalent of a few hundred dollars to her name, and as far as detectives could tell, she didn't have another job lined up. If Hazel intended to move somewhere, she was taking a huge leap of faith, or... She was meeting someone who had the money to support her. To figure out Hazel's intentions, officers needed to know what she was carrying with her. On July 16, 1908, detectives found her suitcase at Union Station, and it broke the case wide open. The suitcase only contained enough clothing and toiletries for a single night. This was a major clue. Wherever Hazel went, she didn't plan to stay there long. In all likelihood, Hazel wasn't trying to start a new life. She could have just been planning to spend the night with a friend or family member. However, detectives found something that suggested her outing wasn't simply casual. A silk robe. Hazel wasn't from a wealthy background. 
To someone like her, a silk robe would be an expensive garment reserved for special occasions. It almost certainly suggested some kind of romantic liaison. Police now felt certain that Hazel was meeting up with a boyfriend or a lover, someone she wanted to keep a secret. But the problem was, Hazel kept her romantic life under wraps. Nobody could name a single person she might have been dating, at least not at first. On July 18th, one of Hazel's friends finally broke. Her name was Mina, and apparently she was one of the few people that Hazel trusted. I'm sorry. I'm really shaken up. I didn't think, I didn't realize what Hazel had gotten herself into. It's all right. Just tell me what you know. You said Hazel had a boyfriend? Hazel had boyfriends. I couldn't tell you how many. She once told me that she had so many men lined up, she could get married anytime she wanted. But she didn't want to. She did. Once. She was engaged to a dentist. Engaged? Uh Uh-huh. I don't remember his name, but they were engaged for about two years. Then one day he just up and left her. Ever since then, she's been completely against getting married. She likes to have men around, though. You know what I mean? I think so, yes. So, what I'm saying is, well, it it could have been anybody. I I don't know who she was going to see. It could have been a boyfriend, a neighbor, a stranger. I just, I, I don't know. This turned the investigation upside down. Hazel didn't just have one romantic interest. She had several. Everyone believed that she was uninterested in dating, but in reality, she was living a secret life, one that included too many men to count. In all likelihood, Hazel was either walking down Taberton Road with someone or was there to meet someone. She took pains to keep this person's identity a secret. Hazel might have inadvertently protected her own killer. Police didn't know what to do. Although it seemed unlikely, it was still possible that Hazel was walking alone. And even though it would be a huge coincidence, the possibility that she'd slipped and fell couldn't totally be ruled out. Still, foul play seemed like the most likely answer, and police hadn't managed to nail down any suspects. Hazel's killer might have been one of her boyfriends, or even the dentist she'd intended to marry. But maybe detectives were on the wrong track. All through their investigation, Hazel's family had seemed off. Her mother and father didn't know anything about her personal life. Her uncle William, the only relative whose home she could have been heading to, seemed shifty. And there was still Frank Smith, who'd conveniently forgotten to tell police he'd seen Hazel on the night of July 7th. Police had too many options and not enough evidence. Near the end of July 1908, they decided to hold a public inquest into Hazel Drew's death. It was their last-ditch attempt to find answers. But it ended up raising even more questions. Coming up, we'll investigate who might have killed Hazel Drew. And now, back to our story. Throughout July of 1908, authorities in Troy, New York, investigated the death of 20-year-old Hazel Drew. 
The young woman's body had been found in Teal's Pond, a small body of water off of Taberton Road. After nearly two weeks, District Attorney Jarvis O'Brien and County Detective Duncan Kay hadn't established any real suspects. According to her friend Mina, Hazel Drew had numerous boyfriends. She could have been walking along Taberton Road with one of these unnamed lovers. However, it was also possible that her family, who seemed strangely unaffected by her death, was involved. And to make matters even more frustrating, Hazel could have been the victim of a very tragic accident. In an attempt to tie up some loose threads, authorities held a public inquest. On July 28, 1908, a group of local jurors gathered to listen to the evidence and hear new testimony. First, police followed up with Hazel's uncle, 52-year-old William Taylor. He doubled down on his claim that Hazel couldn't have been walking to his farm. But Detective Kay wasn't sure that William could be trusted. He'd been doing some digging, and he'd discovered that William never got along with Hazel's father. There was much more tension in the family than anyone wanted to admit. And at the inquest, William came off as very shifty. He told authorities that he couldn't remember what day he learned of Hazel's death. It seemed like if William really cared about his niece, the knowledge of her apparent murder would have made a much bigger imprint on his mind. But this wasn't enough for detectives to accuse William outright. Even if he and Hazel's father fought, that didn't mean he had anything against his niece. Plus, there was another new piece of evidence, something that added an even bigger twist in the case. A local man named William Huffy came forward. He claimed he'd seen something suspicious on July 7th, the night of Hazel's death. I was on Taberton Road that night. When I went by Teal's Pond, I saw a man standing there, sort of lingering. Could you say what the man looked like? No, it was dark. I could just see an outline. He was average height, maybe a bit skinny, and a little further up the road, a carriage was parked. There was another man inside, just sitting there. I had the feeling he was waiting for the other man. It was all very suspicious. William Huffy's testimony was interesting, but it seemed incomplete. He claimed to have seen one man near Teal's Pond and another waiting in a carriage up the road. He said they looked suspicious, but he couldn't give any identifying details. But Huffy didn't have any reason to lie. The focus of the inquest shifted to figuring out who these two suspicious men might have been. There seemed to be only two possibilities. Either the men were strangers who'd yet to be identified, or they were 17-year-old Frank Smith and 35-year-old Rudolf Gundrum. Frank Smith admitted he'd been riding in Rudolph's carriage on the night of Hazel's death. Although he wasn't up front with the information, he eventually told police that he'd spoken to Hazel as she made her way down Taberton Road. According to Frank, Hazel didn't say where she was going or why. But maybe Frank hadn't been entirely truthful. Perhaps something had happened between him and Hazel, something that ended with the young woman's death. It was possible that William Huffy had seen Frank Smith standing near the pond. 
He might have disposed of Hazel's body while Rudolph waited in his carriage up the road. But this story didn't exactly track either. Huffy said he didn't hear any commotion, and police didn't find any signs of a struggle near the scene. If Frank killed Hazel, there would have been evidence that a physical altercation took place, but there wasn't. However, District Attorney O'Brien had another idea. Hazel might not have fallen into the water and drowned, but her death might have been a different kind of accident. You maintain that you never ventured down to Teal's Pond on foot, that you couldn't be the man William Huffy saw? That's correct, sir. Is Rudolph Gundrum a good driver? I'm sorry? I said, is Rudolph Gundrum a good driver? Yes, sir, I suppose so. But it was dark that evening, was it not? Getting dark, yes. If it were getting dark, Rudolph's sight would be impaired to some extent, right? Um, I guess. So let's say Rudolph couldn't see particularly well. I didn't say- Taberton Road is hard to navigate under the best conditions, but in the dark, I say it might be downright dangerous. Rudolph might have directed his horses around a corner a little too quickly, and the next thing the two of you knew, a young woman had been trampled. I... Perhaps you recognized her as Hazel Drew then, or perhaps you didn't realize until later. Either way, you knew she was dead, and you knew you had to do something about it. So you took off her gloves and hat, placed them aside, I and never... threw her body into the water. This idea wasn't impossible. If Hazel had been knocked down by a horse or a carriage... She might have fallen back hard enough to cause the concussion that the medical examiner reported. But there was no evidence to suggest any kind of accident had taken place on Taberton Road. Plus, if Hazel had been trampled by a horse or hit by a carriage, she probably would have sustained more than just one injury. Either way, this was the strongest hypothesis that authorities could come up with. They felt suspicious of Hazel Drew's uncle, but they had no hard evidence against him. They also knew Hazel was involved with numerous men, but most of their identities remained unknown. The few boyfriends that police tracked down had rock-solid alibis. Ultimately, the jury returned a disappointing verdict. Hazel Drew was killed by a person or persons unknown. And that was the end of the investigation. No one ever found out who murdered Hazel, but her name became a legend in upstate New York. Some people claim they've seen her ghost walking along Taberton Road, waiting to take vengeance on the person or people who killed her. Looking back, Hazel Drew's story is a frustrating account of how women were treated in the early 20th century. She was clearly a person who wanted to explore her romantic options. However, dating multiple men was looked down upon in her time period. And to a certain extent, it still is today. For this reason, Hazel kept her romances a secret. She lived a double life, because that was the only way she could ensure that people still respected her. If she could have dated freely without being ostracized, her murderer's identity might be known. Or maybe Hazel's romances had nothing to do with her death. For all we know, Frank Smith might have been the real culprit. Or he might have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
There's also the question of Hazel's family. They seemed unmoved by her death, and they held back valuable information on at least two occasions. Hazel's mother never mentioned that she might have been headed to her uncle's house. Plus, nobody in Hazel's family told police that she'd once been engaged, an arrangement they'd almost certainly have been aware of. And there's still the possibility that Hazel's death was an accident. Although it feels pretty far-fetched, it's technically possible that she was walking alone near Teal's Pond, then accidentally slipped, hit her head, and fell into the water. Based on the available evidence, the theory of accidental death is pretty unlikely. I think Hazel was probably walking down Taberton Road with one of her boyfriends, or that she was meeting a man at Teal's Pond. She might have taken off her hat and gloves before getting near the water. Then she and the man could have gotten into a fight that ended with her murder. That's possible, but I'm not totally convinced. I think District Attorney O'Brien was onto something when he suggested a carriage accident. Hazel could have been walking by herself when a carriage or even an automobile flew around a curve in the road. It might have been Frank and Rudolph or a totally different passerby. Either way, someone could have hit Hazel with their vehicle and then tried to stage her death to look like she'd slipped into the pond. Unfortunately, we'll never know what really happened to Hazel Drew. Her legacy is defined by mystery and by one modern piece of pop culture. Hazel Drew was the inspiration for David Lynch and Mark Frost's television series, Twin Peaks. Much like Hazel, the show's main character, Laura Palmer, died under mysterious circumstances. An FBI investigation revealed that Laura lived a double life. On one hand, she was a popular prom queen who did charity work in her free time. On the other, she was a victim of child maltreatment who struggled with substance abuse and engaged in sex work. Hazel Drew and Twin Peaks have both come to symbolize the concept of mystery itself. There are some questions that we'll never know the answers to. And that's exactly why these kinds of stories haunt us. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. For more information on Hazel Drew, amongst the many sources we used, we found Who Killed Hazel Drew by Ron Hughes, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahay. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Drew Lawn, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi. 
Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.